Thanks, guys. So we've all dealt with this opposition that we've been talking about here this morning. And I took some time this week to even think back through some of the opposition that I faced. Some of it seems pretty mild. Some of it seems pretty severe. I remember the neighbor who didn't like the fact that my dog barked too much. And so I would get postcards stuck in my mailbox without stamps that were about bark collars that every time, you know, the, uh, the dog would bark, it would make some shrill noise in his ear. Uh, and uh, I was like, well, that's kind of uh, passive-aggressive, with the emphasis being on the aggressive. I, I remember the uh, roommate who basically didn't speak to me for an entire year. That was uncomfortable, especially when that person lives like six feet across the room from you. I remember the person who actually campaigned against me uh, getting a job, which the really unfortunate part about that was I probably would have listed that person as one of my references. That's a little scary, right? And I remember that opposition. I, I remember somebody standing in my office one time just actually screaming at me. This is the church office, by the way, because I didn't do as I was instructed to do, whatever that was supposed to mean. But we've all been through these situations, and we all have these stories where we faced opposition. And it could be the neighbor who doesn't like your dog. It could be somebody that you work with. It could be somebody that you go to school with. Hopefully it's not somebody who lives in your house, but I don't know. But we face these things or these opposition moments. And here's what we know about opposition. First of all, sometimes it's personal. And sometimes it's not. It's just positional. But somehow, even when it's not, it still feels personal. Notice that? And I realize I'm supposed to be the bigger person to realize, oh, the, the fact that you're just driving me crazy right now, and every time I turn around, is making my life miserable. That's not personal. That's just because I have a hard time with that one. Maybe that's just my humanity. But maybe you can understand, and maybe you've been there yourself. But when we face opposition in life, have you noticed this? It makes life more difficult. It actually makes life more unpleasant. Um, it can cause significant stress or significant discomfort. Actually, when I face a lot of opposition, the good news is I lose a lot of weight because I get so turned, you know, riled up inside that I can't eat. So it's like this weird favor that people do for me when they, uh, when they actually come you know, with opposition there. But it can make us miserable. It can actually even lead to significant fallout in, in results. There have been times in life when I faced opposition, and where if I'm completely honest, I guess I survived. But survival might be kind of a negative word. Like, there was definite repercussions of things that happened in, in, in prices that were paid for the opposition that I faced. And we all expect to face some opposition in life. However, we don't usually expect to face it from our friends. They're supposed to be friends, right? And we don't expect to face it from our family. They're supposed to love us, right? And we're certainly not supposed to expect it from our fellow church members. Hmm. And yet that often becomes the case. And Paul could relate. Because as Paul writes this letter of 2 Corinthians, he is facing some significant opposition. And guess where it's coming from? Corinth Community Church, or whatever it was called. That was the source of the opposition. And somebody who was attending that church, not only attending that church, somebody who had assumed leadership in that church, 
is making his life basically miserable and is causing problems. And this guy had stepped in evidently to discredit Paul, to subvert his authority, to challenge his teaching so that he could set himself up in Paul's place to say, hey, I'm the person you need to look to. I'm the person you need to be following here. I'm the person you need to be listening to because what I'm telling you here is true and what you need to get. And as Paul writes this letter, it's with this context and this background. In fact, we know in looking at this, this book already, Paul's already made some extra visits. Paul's already sent some unpleasant letters. There's been some confrontations that have gone on. There's been injured feelings. There's been frustrations. There's been obstacles. And all of these things are going on within the church there at Corinth. But as we get to chapter 10, we see a little bit of a, a shift in the book. And just to real quickly review, chapters 1 through 7, Paul deals with some different specific issues in the church. But if you look at chapters 1 through 7, they're pretty positive, actually. They're pretty warm. And, and Paul's trying to be affirming, even as he's dealing with these issues, he's, he's being pretty nice about it. When you get to chapters 8 and 9, which we talked about last week, he like shifts course and deals with a specific instance or issue that's going on. That was about an offering that the church had promised to take and had not followed through on. And then he gets to chapter 10, and the tone of the book changes. Because Mr. Nice Guy Paul becomes not so nice. And he becomes much more um, forceful in what he has to say. And you sense that shift as you get to chapter 10. In fact, so much so that some people suggest that this last um, 10 through 13, these last four chapters, may have actually been part of another book. And we already know that we've got four books of Corinthians going on. There could potentially be a Corinthians E. We don't know for sure. If this, these last four chapters are actually a fifth book, they probably came before the fourth book, just to confuse you even further. But we'll just take these as a significant issue, though, because even if it's just part of the same letter, Paul's saying, okay, pay attention right now. Let's get down to the hard stuff. And so when he gets to this uh, chapter, he's dealing with opposition. Just to give you uh, the context of where we're going here. He's dealing with opposition that's coming out of the church. He's dealing with this opposition of this person who has actually led other people against him. And he's got to deal with this situation. And so as we deal or dive into this story, we look at that context because it helps us to know what's going on. And when we talk about context, that's always one of the most important rules when we open the scriptures and say, okay, what is the context here? So sometimes the context is, what is the story where this passage finds itself? And so that's what we're talking about here this morning, this story of, of Paul facing this opposition and in, in, in false teaching actually being taught in the church. We also look at the context of the scripture. What are the verses that go before or the verses that go after? And that helps us understand. It's also important to us even to understand the context of the day. We have the tendency to read the Bible as 21st century Americans which is fine, other than the fact that the Bible was written to like first century, you know, Greeks or Jews or, or whatever, and, and the culture sometimes was very different in that day, so we need to at least have that in mind. So I say those things as we dive into this passage here today to say the context is going to be super important to what Paul has to say here. So 2 Corinthians chapter 10, are you ready? Verse number 1. 
Paul starts out here and says, By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I'm going to read that phrase again because it's super important to what he says here. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am, in air quotes, I guess you can do that in Greek too, air quotes, timid when face-to-face with you, but bold towards you when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of the world. And to summarize those verses, Paul is saying, I'm coming to see you. And I know my reputation is that I'm, you know, kind of mild-mannered. But if I have to be, I can play the hard guy. And I'd rather not. That's what he's saying here, okay? And then he, let's jump down to verse number 7. He says this, you are judging by appearances. So if we go back to verse number, the end of verse number 2 there, he says, live by the standards of this world. What he's actually referring to is, you are judging things by a different standard. And the standard that you're using to judge things is the standard of appearance. And that's what you're using to judge me. And you're saying, by appearances, Paul, you don't measure up to this other guy here. By appearances, you're more timid. By appearances, you haven't seen the success. By appearances, you're not as good a speaker. And and, and so he says, you're judging by appearances. You're evaluating me on something that's inaccurate, something that's not informed, and actually something that's just not correct. And so he goes on, he says here in verse uh, number... Seven, if anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. And so this opposition has been saying, okay, forget Paul, listen to me, man. I am Christ's representative. I am speaking for Christ here in this assembly. And so Paul says, you know what, if they belong to Christ, so do I. In fact, so I even boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, and I will not be ashamed of it. If you go back in Paul's story, he had a pretty significant beginning. I don't know who this other guy was in Corinth, but I'm pretty sure he didn't have a Damascus Road experience. And so Paul's a little bit saying, hey, hey, by the way, let's not forget that I have this authority. And it's not so Paul could pat himself on the back and say, oh, look at what a great guy I am. He's saying, hey, I just got this job. I didn't ask for it, but I have to carry it out. And so he says, I do not want to seem um, to frighten you. I'm in verse number 9. I do not want to seem to frighten you with my letters, for some say his letters are waiting and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive, and the speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. So before I've come to you, and I've been pretty timid and, 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 and meek, and then I sent a letter, and you're like, whoa, that letter was really strong. He said, this time if I have to come again, it's going to be like that letter. So I'm just giving you a, a forewarning here, unless, unless you respond here as you need to. It goes on in verse number 12. We dare not cla- uh, to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. I'm not trying to compare myself to this other leader. I'm trying to compare myself to who and what I'm supposed to be doing here. Because when those people measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond our proper limits, but we will confine our boasting to the sphere of service to God, uh, who himself has assigned to us a sphere that also includes you. And Paul is saying here, I'm not going to compare myself to this person or to these people who are leading astray, because that's foolish to start with, and secondly... What I've asked, to, what God has asked me to do and what I've done 
It's just between me and God. It's not between me and somebody else. And I don't need to say, well, I did this better than this person over here has done it. Or, you know, or that person can't say that he's doing it better than I'm doing. Because all I'm answering to here is God and trying to be faithful to what he's asked me to do. And so Paul's put into a rough situation here. Because Paul's having to defend himself a little bit. Not for the sake of Paul, but for the sake of the church. And if you've been in that situation, it's uncomfortable. Sometimes it's like, you know, I'll just take one for the team. But Paul couldn't in this situation because of what was going on. But I skipped over a couple of verses here earlier in the chapter. If you notice that, I went from verse 3 to verse number 7. And I want to go back and pick up these verses because I think they really help us understand this passage. So if we go back to verse number 3, it says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. And let me back up to, to verse number 2 and read 2 and 3 together. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war, war as the world does. Now the question is, who is Paul fighting? Because when he refers to the war, uh, the world, and if you read in some translations, it'll say the flesh. In other translations, it'll actually use the word carnal. It all comes from the same, same Greek word there. But he's talking about we don't fight as the world fights, but he's not fighting the world. In this context, he's actually, the fight here, the war here, is with what's going on inside the church. It's with this false teacher, it's with the false teaching that's going on, and so he says, hey, we are fighting internally here, and by this is just a, a huge, by the way, generally speaking, when churches get into conflicts and when churches are under attack, it seldom comes from the outside. When, when churches are attacked from the outside, you know what it does? It unites. Everybody comes together like, we got to stand here. The fighting comes from inside, and that is what? It, what happens then? It divides and that's what's going on here in the Corinthian church. It's dividing the church, and Paul is stepping in to say, okay, we have to do something against it. So I guess you could say we're fighting against the influence of the enemy, and we're fighting against the influence of the enemy as he affects church members. Think about that one for a minute. That means that sometimes I can be an instrument or a tool of the devil, even as a Christ follower, even as a church member, I need to be careful about that because we don't really know if this was, you know, we assume maybe even this person leading this church might have been a believer, maybe not, but certainly seems to have spiritual interest. But, so we need to keep that in mind. But we're fighting against something that's going on inside the church and, and we're fighting against these, these influences, whatever it is that he's teaching here. But he says, we fight with weapons, verse number four, that are not the weapons of the world. So it's not that we're just, we're, we're fighting here. It's how are we fighting or how are we not fighting? It's what he's really the point making. He says, we're not fighting like the world would typically fight. So when you get into an, an, a conflict or when you get into opposition, how does the world typically fight is the question. Well, the world typically fights to win, and we all do. 
But we fight to win by overpowering the opponent. And so typically, when you have opposition, what you have going on is you have a power struggle. And where one person is struggling or, or working or fighting to overpower the other. And that's what's going on in this church situation too. This person is struggling or working or trying to overcome or overwhelm Paul. And so the weapons that the typical worldly opponent would use would be power. Or we could, we could give you some other illustrations. It would be deception. So we try to fool you because in the process of fooling you, then we have the power over you, right? Or sometimes it's manipulation because if I can threaten or if I can uh, bribe or whatever the different tool that I use to, to manipulate you, then that brings me back and it gives me power. And you can add to this misrepresentation in ambushes. You ever been ambushed by somebody? Or somebody tries to catch you by surprise? Or you can add bullying in there or intimidation or threats or guilt trips or recruiting other people to be on your team or all of these different things, empty promises, all designed to win, but in a, I'm going to be stronger than you. And you can even add in here pragmatism or successes, and evidently the card that this other leader was playing with Paul is, look at all the success we're having here. Can Paul measure up to that? Look at how people love my sermons here, my speaking ability. Can Paul measure up to that? And, and there's a very pragmatic thing here, but it all comes back to this thing like, I'm going to win because I am going to overpower you. And Paul says the weapons that we use are not like this. So what does he mean that they're not like this? Well, two things. He means, first of all, they're not like this and that we take a different approach. We're not going to try to overpower. That's not the game plan. But secondly, they're different in the fact that they actually have real power. In fact, how did he describe it? They have divine power. So we use God's weapons, which don't try to overpower, because we trust God in the process to give us victory or to give us solution or, or pick your word that you want there. All right, so let's go back to verse number one here. What are these weapons? I think Paul hints at it right here. He says, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, humility and gentleness. The weapons that we have to fight against Opposition are humility and gentleness and other graces that might be similar to that, kindness, meekness, love. Those are the types of things I suppose you could add in there, prayer. It, these are not very weapony weapons, though. Because it sounds like, okay, one person's over here trying to overpower, and I'm over here just playing the nice guy. Okay. Well, that's not exactly what it means, but it does mean that I am conducting myself in a graceful, humble, and gentle way. And so the world tries to win the battle different from the way that we win the battle. So, now let's check this out where the power, it doesn't seem super strong, what Paul actually says here, he says in verse number four, on the contrary, they, our weapons, have the divine power to demolish strongholds. And maybe they shouldn't work, but the actual truth is they have power. In fact, the power is so strong it can just demolish strongholds. And 
strongholds is more of an Old Testament word than a New Testament word. In fact, this is the only place that shows up in the New Testament. But it's simply a, a military position that, that seems like impenetrable. It, it's like the castle on the hill. Nobody's going to take it. Or it's like digging the trenches and you, you just kind of you know, hunker down and, and that's not going to get overrun. And what Paul is saying here is this power, or these weapons, excuse me, these weapons are strong enough with God behind them to overtake somebody who's got an entrenched position. Think the guy who's leading this church and causing all these problems. Think the false teaching that's taking root there. Paul's saying, okay, by assuming this approach here, we can overcome that stronghold. And he goes on there, he says in verse number five, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So these arguments are actually the teachings, the claims that, that are being made here. And he says, okay, this power that we have can overcome that, these teachings. He says he can also overcome the pretensions, and this is really the attitudes that were being shown here. This power can overcome these attitudes. And then he says, then we are going to take captive every thought. This power has the ability to overcome even the thoughts or the ideas or you could actually say the verdicts or the conclusions or the accepted viewpoints. And so Paul's giving us an, a game plan, a strategy that's strong enough to overcome these strangleholds, actually might be a, a good word too, of, of um, false teaching, uh, of prideful attitudes, uh, of wrong views of things. That's how we're going to go about it. So to summarize these verses, what Paul is saying is we, or I, am prepared to expose this person, expose these teaching in appropriate ways, but I'm going to depend on God and his divine power and truth. That's where it says to bring it into obedience to Christ. That's to line it up with who Christ was, to line it up with what Christ taught, to line it up for us with the scripture. I am prepared to expose this person by teaching what the truth is, but doing so in an appropriate way so that God can use his divine power to break this power in the church. And then he goes on in verse number six. He says, we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. And Paul's saying, hey, we're going to go after this. Now, I want you to come in and, and to accept what I'm saying here because I don't really want to get into a power struggle with you. In fact, I'm depending, I'm going to come in here with grace and humility and kindness because I'm going to depend on God to actually win the day here. Now, we're going to get truth out there. We're going to talk about what it is, but we're going to let him be the force and not ourselves. All right. So what do we learn about turning opposition upside down from this whole story here? Let me give you six things real quick. First of all, when we face opposition in our lives, especially spiritually, but I think you could use this anywhere, first of all, stand your ground. If you are in the right, and you need to make sure that you're in the right, but if you're in the right, you can stand your ground. Paul's not willing here to be bullied. Paul is, Paul is not ready to be overwhelmed, and he's not just waving the white flag and say, okay, if everybody thinks that, I'll just give up, and I'll go down the road to the next church, and, and we'll start over here. He's standing his ground, but note that standing your ground is not the exact same thing as going on the offensive. He said, okay, here's the line, and this is what truth is, and this is what's right, and we're, we're going to stand here, 
But he's not like, okay, and, you know, we're going to go, you know, let, let's, how about you and I, we just meet out in the alley. We don't see that spirit here. And so sometimes when you're facing opposition, you need to stand your ground and realize that that's appropriate, but make sure that, that you do it the right way. Secondly here, try not to make it personal. Paul seems a little bit reluctant to actually defend himself, and as you read on, even in chapter 11, um, he, he's having to defend himself more. He seems a little bit reluctant because I don't think he wants to make it about him. The problem here is that there's false teaching that's being taught, and there's a leader who shouldn't be leading that's actually leading, and he's trying to deal with that issue and to not make it personal. The problem is it's really hard not to make opposition personal, and I know. Because it always feels that way. And we just need to remember, though, that it may not be about us. And sometimes the opposition we face, we need to remember that sometimes it really doesn't have that much to do with us, other than the fact we just happen to be the ones standing there. And sometimes we get attacked and criticized. In fact, sometimes I have the, I've had this conversation with Dr. Lamb over at uh, Grayson Elementary School. Uh, this is our phrase that we share with each other sometimes. Remember, people are not against you, they're for themselves. But sometimes in opposition, we need to remind ourselves of that. Okay, are people really against me? Or are they against a position that I'm holding that I have to hold? And if you can separate that out, you're going to help yourself. The other thing you can do with this is sometimes is to stop and say, well, wait, maybe it is me. And if it is me, then I need to do something about that. And it may be that I'm holding the wrong position, or it may be that I'm holding the position in the wrong way, which leads us to the next point, which is adopt a posture of humility. The beginning of this chapter is so important because Paul says, in a spirit of gentleness and humility, I appeal to you. And if you're going to face opposition, you need to adopt that posture of humility. So we can be totally right in a position and totally wrong in how we hold it. In, in, if you're married, you've done that one, haven't you? And we can do the same thing. So, so people may object to the position that we hold, but they shouldn't object to the person that holds it or the way that the person who holds it conducts himself. That's tough. But that's what we're after here. And so we need to be leaning into that idea of the gentleness and humility of Christ. Fourth, refuse to play the power game. And this is what our world is. These are the weapons of the world. In fact, we see this everywhere. Everybody's fighting for power. Turn on the news. And every story you listen to say, oh, who's trying to get the power here? Because you can answer that question. And we need to stay out of that. The power belongs to God, but, the, but, but really, we're trying to give it to God in a sense, too. So we need to lose sometimes the militancy that we have, where we're so quick to react and so quick to charge into battle. That's really not the posture that Paul's talking about here. We need to lose the pragmatism. We need to lose the pride. We need to lose the manipulation, the reaction. We need to stop swinging back sometimes. But anytime we get into a power game where I have to win and where I have to overpower this other person, I've just resorted to the wrong weapons. And actually, I, I've 
I've resorted to the wrong objective as well. Number five here, know the truth. And this is the ultimate answer. We have to bring it into obedience to Christ. And one of the things that really jumps out to me in this is how easy it is for false teaching to make its way into the church. And we read this in the epistles sometimes. We're like, okay, we need to watch out for false teachers. Who are they? Do you ever struggle with that? Like, what are they talking about? And we have this picture that it's somebody, like all these people that were really subversive in their day. Maybe. I don't know. I think today sometimes it's, it's, it's far less subversive and maybe much more an ignorance thing. Where people stand up and teach things in sincerity, but think, teach things that just really don't line up with Scripture. And that's really hard to work through, and I get that, but we need to be careful about that too. I was thinking about things that I have been taught wrong in my life, about grace, about faith, about salvation, about heaven, about vocation, about spirituality, about leadership, about stewardship, about individualism, about success, about evangelism, about marriage, about parenting, and my list could go on. And you know who taught me all that stuff? Sincere people. And sometimes even sincere people saying, here, you know, here's in the Bible. But we need, to, we need to keep fighting back to what truth is and saying, okay, we've got to get back. Is this really what the Bible is teaching here? Because we're always dealing with an interpretation of truth. And that's just something to be aware of. I believe that there is truth, and truth is contained in God's Word, and God's Word is true and all of that, and I am trying to interpret, and even as we deal with these scriptures this morning, I am doing my best to say this is what I believe the truth is here. But did you hear what I just said? Be because we're always interpreting truth, and so we need to be aware of that. And so we need to adopt a humble position because sometimes we may discover that, that what we're holding... <laughs> Maybe he was wrong, and maybe the opposition, we really did have that coming. But know what the truth is, and lastly, let God do his thing. We are to depend on divine power. That is God, not as us. And he is, he, he is the one who demolishes strongholds and arguments and pretensions. You know, as I look back in my life at some of the major opposition that I have faced, it's been interesting to see how it's played out, and it's been interesting to see how it's been resolved. And sometimes it's been resolved because I had to say, okay, you're, you got a point, okay, and you're right, and so I'm going to have to make a change there. Uh, sometimes that means an apology on my point. I've also had situations where people came back and apologized to me for what they did. I've, I've had, you know, situations where people just moved on. I've had situations where people who were detractors became friends and supporters, but that's God working out that situation. I, I, I mean, I even have situations like, I have one of the weirdest situations I can't even explain where it was just obvious that God removed somebody from a role where it was just creating havoc in my story. And it's kind of like God said, you know, I think I'm just going to move him out of the way. There's no other explanation. But what happens? When I adopt the right posture, and when I realize that it's God's power to tear down these strongholds, First of all, I can breathe a little easier. And secondly, I can step back and say, okay, God, do your thing. Do your thing in me. Do your thing in this other person. Do your thing in this situation. That's what we're after. So opposition is something that we all face from time to time. It can be difficult, frustrating, threatening, disturbing, scary. You pick your word. But sometimes you feel like you're losing the game. And so let me throw that slide back up there. If you're black... It looks pretty dire right there, doesn't it? 
But we still got one play left, and we're going to make that the God play. Because God can take you when you're feeling down, and he can turn everything to be upside down. And maybe give you a little encouragement and pick you up and send you on your way. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, I feel a little bit for Paul, who's going through a really difficult situation, and yet I'm grateful for the fact that Paul did because it encourages me and mine. And so as we sit here as a church this morning, I don't know where this hits, but I pray that your spirit would speak to the people sitting here and that we wouldn't just listen, but that we would respond, that this would make a difference in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives, in our relationships. So my question to you as you sit here this morning is, where are you facing opposition? Which of these steps that we've talked about do you really need to lean into this morning? So that's going to be mine. Or maybe it's two, or maybe it's three. Maybe it's the whole list. I don't know. But you're going to take, learn from what Paul's approach was and apply it yourself. And also I'd ask this morning, if you're here and you don't even have a relationship with God, don't know what that means, what it means to be a Christ follower, I'd love to have that conversation with you. If you're a guest and just like to know more about this church, I'd love to have a conversation with you. Because here's the, the, the promise that I can make to you is God wants to be a part of your life and he wants to fix these areas and help you in these areas. It can be so perplexing and so defeating and so frustrating. So God, we look to you this morning to help us as we face opposition. Jesus, we are so grateful for the fact that you face opposition for us in our stead today. We pray that we would go through from here with a humble and gentle spirit, always looking for the truth, always willing to listen and to learn. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? I don't believe we have donuts today because instead we have soup. And if you didn't bring soup today, there's a lot of it down there. So you stick around anyhow. We would love to serve you up too. So everybody, please stick around for, for, uh, for the soup downstairs. Our storylines um, prompt for this week, identify a situation where you are facing or have faced opposition. Write about that situation in terms of a strategic plan or course of action that you could take either in the situation you're in or if you face something there in the future. Next week, Pastor Mark is going to be talking. We're going to jump ahead to actually chapter 12. He's going to be talking about this thorn in the flesh that comes up here in 2 Corinthians and giving you some information and some encouragement about that. So I want to invite you back to that as well. Have a great afternoon. You are dismissed. You can leave. They still had one more song they wanted to play, so they can play it. But we're, you're dismissed. Let's go eat.